of the Old Testament in the first place. It's kind of like this. When you start dating somebody, you know, you know, guys, you know, you got this chick and you kind of start to get to know her and, you know, she's pretty cool, but she's got some weird tendencies like all, you know, chicks do in some areas of life, you know, she's just, you know, acts out sometimes or whatever, whatever, whatever's going on with her. And then, and then at some point in a relationship, you learn her history, you learn her story. You learn what her parents were like. You learn where she grew up. You learn what she did when she was growing up. You learn all the backstory. In fact, at some point, you go, and you know, if, if you get this far, and you don't get this far for a while because it's a big commitment, but at some point, you meet the parents, right? And then you look at her and you say, okay, I get why you're so weird now, you know? That makes perfect sense because your parents are freaking weirdos, you know? How could you, in fact, how are you this normal in light of who your parents are, you know? But, but what happens is at some point relationally, you meet the other side. You meet the other side of the story. You meet the other side of the parents. You get the holistic perspective of who this parent person is, not just since you've known them, but before you knew them in their entire back story. And so essentially what we want to do is we want to give you kind of the whole story of who Jesus is and why in the world it's so important now. To kind of kick this off, we're going to actually start in the New Testament and we're going to talk about this and its importance because Jesus talked about it. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up. We're not going to be here for too long. We're going to be in the book of Luke. We're kind of going to drop in. Um, in the book of Luke, we're going to start in chapter 24. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know this, but if, you know, if, if you're not terribly familiar, let me kind of give you some cliff notes to what's happened so far. So Jesus has shown up on the scene at this point. He was born, you know, little baby boy, Christmas, all that kind of stuff, little seven pound, you know, whatever ounce, baby Jesus. So Jesus shows up at this point, and Jesus has lived, in, has lived in his entire life, you know, into his 30s, and for the last about three years of Jesus' life, um, he was in ministry, which means that he made it his life's goal to teach, to preach, to heal, to, you know, just do all kinds of things for all kinds of people to prove and to show the world that he was, in fact, the Messiah that the Old Testament had pushed and had, had kind of, you know, pointed towards. And so when Jesus showed up, did all kinds of miracles, taught all kinds of stuff, and people would come by the tens, by the hundreds, sometimes by the thousands to hear Jesus speak. And so then something kind of interesting happened that they didn't think was going to happen to the Messiah, but looking back in history is super common to us. And knowledge. He died. For them, they thought this Messiah was going to be this dude who was going to be around forever. They thought he was just going to restore the nation of Israel. He was going to just put them back to their complete, complete power in terms of where they were in the world. But then he dies, and nobody knows what to do. And after a few days, he comes back to life, or he shows back up in the resurrection. And what's interesting is when Jesus shows back up, what we're going to look at real quickly is what his first thing that he does with his disciples almost every single time that he shows up to himself. And here's what's interesting. He doesn't tell them, he doesn't tell them something to do. Most of us, when we read the Bible, we think of Jesus showing back up, you know, Jesus shows back up. It's like, okay, Jesus, so what do we do now? You know, you died, now you're back. How long are you going to be with us? We've got a million questions. So, so what do we do with what we now know? But here's, here, let me just kind of show this to you. Luke chapter 24, if you've got your Bible. So Jesus is walking. He's talking to a couple of his, you know, close guys. And as he's talking to these close guys, they don't really know it's Jesus. And so they're talking about him. And they're saying, man, this crazy thing happened. This Jesus of Nazareth, he died. You know, a bunch of, bunch of, bunch of wild stuff happened. And after he died, you know... Um, we just don't really know what to do. And so Jesus is walking. They're talking to Jesus. They don't know they're talking to Jesus, which is an interesting story in and of itself. He, they, they end kind of the story with, with this in verse 22. Moreover, some of our, the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. 
And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen in a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And that just seems weird to them. But verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But they did not see. In other words, now now there's this rumor that's circulating around that Jesus came back from the dead. Look at what Jesus does. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In beginning, and this is huge, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning themselves. Now, Jesus gets his, you know, kind of people together, and, and, and what happens in a few verses from here is all of a sudden he shows back up, you know, or, or they, these, he, he shows himself to these people. These people run into all the other disciples. They're kind of all gathered in this upper room, and they're telling, you know, they're saying, man, we just saw Jesus. We just saw Jesus. The rumor that we heard, the rumor that we thought about, you know, it's real, it's legit. Holy cow. So Jesus shows up to this room full of people who have just heard this news that Jesus is around. As they were talking about these things, verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that that was a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why, you know, and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved, for the joy they were marveled. And he said to them, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Now, this has nothing to do with the sermon. Let me just tell you. I love the fact that Jesus stops. You know, he just came back from the dead. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, everybody's decided, you know, he's still got the, the scars and all this stuff going on. And they're like, what? And he's like, hey, by the way, you got any grub? You know, I haven't eaten in about three or four days at this point, you know, and I just came back from the dead and I just got, you know, crucified. So y'all got any chicken? You know, so in, in, anyway, so they give him, so again, nothing to do with the sermon. Verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything was written in the law and Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then, and then he does the exact same thing. And then he does the exact same thing. And this is what he does. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, here's what's incredible about the New Testament as it relates to the Old Testament. When we read the Old Testament... When we read the Old Testament, this is the handy TV that we're going to start teaching from from time to time, by the way. Everybody say hey to the TV. That's really odd that you just said hi to a TV. So when Jesus talked about this, when Jesus talked about this, what Jesus, or what, what we oftentimes look at when we look at the Old Testament, it's simple. When we see it, when we see the Old Testament, we always look for what to do. You see that? That's what we look for. We look and we want to say, okay, I'm reading through Jeremiah. I'm reading through, you know, Ezekiel. I'm reading, the, I'm reading in Genesis. And all I like to do is look and say, what are the life lessons? What are the life lessons that I need to learn? How do I need to essentially modify my behavior in light of what I just read? Right? You read the Bible. And you don't just read it to read it. You read it a lot of times to apply it. But here's what's interesting. What Jesus did, what Jesus did, when he opened up the pages of Scripture for the first time, could have done anything, could have said anything. This is what Jesus did. He wasn't interested in what to do. What Jesus was interested in was who to see. That is to say, when Jesus opened up the pages of Scripture, when Jesus looked at the Old Testament, he wasn't concerned with what to do. He was concerned with who to see. And when you read the New Testament for yourself, it's it's just this fascinating thing. Almost every time the Old Testament is brought up, 
It's not brought up with, here's these cool life lessons, here's these cool application points. It's to clarify and to see Jesus better. And to understand that everything in the Old Testament was not about what to do, but everything in the Old Testament pointed to who to see. Now here's why that's, here's why that's huge. This meant that the thing that obsessed the early church about the Old Testament was they believed the entire Old Testament pointed to Jesus. But for many of us, when we read the Old Testament, we have almost no understanding of how to see Jesus in light of the scriptures. And so at the end of this, at the end of this, there is going to be some application. There's going to be a little bit of application every week, but it's just you know, full disclosure here. The goal of this series is not, is, not, is not to say, hey, here's three things to change about your life every single week. The goal of this series is that you and I would understand what the early church understood. That the power in the Old Testament is not in its life lessons. The power in the Old Testament is the ability to see the coming Savior. So, we're going to you know, quickly go through a, a story that was one of the earliest stories in the book of Genesis. One of the earliest stories regarding uh, kind of the, the coming Messiah. So if you've got your Bible, again, you can flip over to Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, there's, there's, there's a bunch of stuff happening in Genesis chapter 22, and I'll try to be brief with, with everything that was going on. But God essentially set up this disagreement between himself and between his people, between himself and his people. And, and they called it, it was an overarching agreement, they called it a covenant. You might, maybe if you've been around church for a while, you've heard the word covenant. We can go into a lot of detail about what a covenant is, but the, the relevant information from the covenant is God basically said, hey, I'm going to be your God, Abraham, I'm going to start a people group through you. And you are going to be my people. This people group through Abraham would eventually become the nation of Israel. But that was a little bit difficult for Abraham to understand at the time because Abraham was old and his wife was really old. And so God told him, you know, I'm going to start this people group. I'm going to start this people group. I'm going to start this people group. Well, a lot of things happened between then. In fact, it got to the point where God had you know, reiterated that to Abraham. But Abraham hadn't had a son yet. And Abraham, God came to Abraham and said, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. At which point Abraham legitimately laughed in God's face because he said... God, my wife's real old, and I'm not trying to you know, play the blame game or anything like that, you know, but, but I mean, come on. No one has a wife, or no wife has a kid as old as my wife is. Well, eventually, eventually, God's promise, God's promise to Abraham that he's going to have a family, and this family's going to become a nation, and this nation, in fact, is going to bless the entire world. And he said, through your line, through your line, I am going to bless all of the nations. And so eventually, Abraham has a son. And Abraham's son's name is Isaac. And as we're going to read, Abraham and Isaac go through this interesting experience, which kind of shifts maybe some ways that we think about God. This is what happens to Abraham and Isaac. Chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Kind of typical back and forth. He said, being God, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. <laughs> to which if any of us were Abraham, it's like, hold on, God. That's a really weird thing for you to say. God, I don't know if you know how families work. I don't know if you know how nations are built, but I got to have a son. 
And that son's going to have more sons. And we're like really old at this point. We're at the point where my son, you know, is starting to grow up some. And now you, now you want me to kill him? God, there, there's like 10 levels on which none of this makes sense. One, that's not how you build a family. Just, you know, parenting tip. Two, two, I mean, God, that's just weird. I mean, that's just terrible. What kind of a God, what kind of a loving God, what kind of a loving God would say, I want you to sacrifice your son? In fact, it's the only time in the Old Testament, it's the only time in the Old Testament where God gave someone the command to sacrifice their son. But God says, hey, Abraham, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your son. You know, you know your only son? Yeah, God, I'm my only son. You know the son that you love? Yeah, my son, I love him. You know, okay, you know the son that I'm going to build this family and through this family, I'm going to build this nation through this nation, I'm going to bless the entire world? Yep, 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 know that one. Same son. I want you to kill him. Now, let me just tell you, we have community groups here. And if we're ever in a community group, and you kind of disclose in some of the prayer request time, you know, God's calling me. You know, i got this kid. And God's calling me to kill him. You know, just so you know, we're going to call DCF as fast, you know, we're going to call the police as fast as we possibly can because that is outrageous. But Abraham has heard God clearly and essentially says, okay. So Abraham rose, verse 3, early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now that, that's just an interesting thing because this, this isn't like, like a, okay, we're just going to go out in the woods back behind the shed, you know. Abraham's wandering for about three, or about three days. He knows that God has called him to kill his son. He knows that God has called him to sacrifice his son. And the weird part is it's a burnt offering. So I'm going to sacrifice my son and then I'm going to set my son on fire. I mean, come on, God, who in the world does that? Who, what kind of a God would call someone to do that? Then Abraham said to, the young, to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and the boy will go over here, and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the word of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, the fire, and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abram, Abraham, he said, my father, here I am, my son. So I guess they didn't talk very much. That's a weird interaction. Three days into a hiking trip. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? <laughs> well, son, you know that God that we serve? <laughs> Come on. This is, you know, Isaac's starting to, to kind of figure stuff out. He says, you know, okay, God, Dad, not God. Dad, you know, this makes tons of sense. You know, we're going to go. We've been walking around. We're going to make this sacrifice, you know. You know, God, Dad, we've got the fire. You know, we've got the wood. We've got, you know, the knives. And we've got the whole thing, but... Dad, I don't see a lamb anywhere. And we've been walking for about three days, and I still haven't seen a lamb. And so what's our plan here? <laughs> to which Abraham does what any dad would do. He lies. You know, you're not going to say, oh, well, son, the funny thing is, you know, I'm actually going to kill you. So, hey, you know, let me see your hands. Let me tie them together. You know, no, he says, oh, well, God's going to provide. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt, put it on his son. And Isaac said to his father, my father. Here I am, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Abraham said to him, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 
So they both went together, and then when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, we don't know exactly how this went down, but this must have been an interesting little thing. Like, how did Abraham trick his son into being able to tie him up? We don't know if Abraham was just like, you know, had that grown man strength and like beat it into his son and then tied his hands and feet up. But for whatever reason or however it happened, somehow Abraham gets his son, ties him up, lays him on the altar and he is about to kill his one and only son. Now here's the interesting part. When this happens, when this happens, then Abraham, verse 10, reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, now, we read this through the lens of the Bible and many of us have, you know, gone through and, and, and you know how the story ends. But come on, what would you do? What would you do in this situation? If God has called you to do something absolutely outrageous, something that no one else is going to understand, something that no one else is going to get, but you know deep down that God has called you to do. And Abraham has such tremendous faith, such incredible, incredible faith in God, that he says, God, this makes no sense and this doesn't line up with your character. But you've called me to do it. So he gets the knife out and he raises it up. To kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Now, there's there's multiple, as you've probably already started to see, there's multiple overlays between this and Jesus. The idea of giving your one and only son, the idea of in and of itself having the faith. In God, this covenant that God was going to bless the entire world. But in this verse 11, what many scholars will say, what many scholars will believe, is that throughout the Old Testament, there's this figure that's not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord has attributes and qualities that are only described about God throughout the Old Testament. And so what many people will believe is that this is a physical representation. This is a physical voice or an audible voice from Jesus himself speaking into Abraham's situation. and says, stop, stop. And this is what happens. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold him, and behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. He said, by myself... I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless and will multiply the sand and will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you, Abraham, have obeyed my voice. Now, here's what's interesting about what just happened. God spoke to Abraham. This many, most scholars believe that Jesus 
speaks to Abraham in the Old Testament in a, in a, in a story that's just laid with imagery of this guy giving his one and only son as centuries later, God would give his one and only son. But one of the things that absolutely exploded the early church, when they would talk, when they would talk about the, New, the Old Testament, they would talk about Jesus being born of the line of David who came from the line of Abraham. And in fact, in your New Testament, in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a couple of them record a genealogy. And when you read the genealogy, you read it like I do, it's like, okay, 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 here's the actual important part. Here's when Jesus is born. But to them, this was huge, and this was critical. Because way back, I mean, centuries and centuries ago, God promised, God promised, God promised that there was going to come this guy and that the entire world was going to be blessed through this nation. That it wasn't just for God's people. It wasn't just for God's chosen people. It was, in fact, for the entire, entire world. And God, in Genesis 22, speaks back into Abraham and says, Abraham, I don't want you to forget. In fact, I want someone to record this because someday there's going to be people that are going to sit there and they're going to hear about my story and I want them to know that from the get-go, I had a plan of salvation. From the get-go, before anything even happened on planet Earth in terms of religious you know, activity, before anybody put their faith, their hope in Jesus, before any of that stuff happened, I want you to know that before the foundation of the earth was laid, the Lamb of God was slain. And I want you to see it. And in fact, I'm going to spend hundreds of years prophesying about it. I'm going to spend generations and generations and generations building up to it. That there's going to come a Savior. You see, for you and I, oftentimes when we read the New Testament, when we hear about Jesus, we see the start of a story. But for Jesus, for Jesus, it was not the start. In fact, I'll end with this as kind of a quick story. I was preparing for a Christmas Eve service. And as I was preparing for a Christmas Eve service, I, um, I, was, I was looking at it. If you were here, you know we talked about a, a couple of old hymns and how, you know, long lay the world and sin and error pining till he appeared and soul felt us worth. And so much of the Christmas story is, is just so heavy because of the Old Testament, because of the rebellion of the nation of Israel. And as I was reading, you know, the, the, these lyrics and all that stuff, as, as you have seen on websites, you know, they have all these message boards. And this one dude who was trolling just nasty, but he was really funny. You ever seen somebody like that, like something that you're not emotionally involved in, but you're just laughing at how much this dude pisses everybody off? Um, well, this guy, basically, it was honestly a great point, and he said it really sarcastically, which was even funnier to me. But he, he's writing, and he says, so basically the story of Jesus is the story that God didn't care for about 4,000 years as the Bible recounts it. And then all of a sudden he shows up one day and decides to do something. <laughs> and he said, neat, period. <laughs> I just like, oh man, I would, I would like to hang out with you. I feel like we would get along. But here's the problem, here's the problem. That's how a lot of times we view the Old Testament. 
We view it as all of a sudden, God, 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 wasn't working, wasn't working, wasn't working, wasn't working. Okay, now Jesus showed up because we have to have some new system because the old system wasn't working. For God, it was a buildup. It was a buildup. It was a buildup. Jesus wasn't the beginning of the story. Jesus was the pinnacle of the story. Jesus wasn't where everything started. Jesus was where everything topped and everything plateaued when Jesus showed up on the scene and when he died for the sins of the world. Because for tens and hundreds and thousands of years, God had been saying, there's going to come a guy through this nation through this family I am going to bless the entire world and I want everyone to know about it and I have the patience to send prophet after prophet after prophet to have imagery after imagery after imagery I mean this story is just full of it in fact one of the interesting things about this whole thing is what we believe as Christians is that Jesus died and someday Jesus is going to come back in the same way you know the next time that we hear about Isaac is on his wedding day when it comes to wedding days when it talks about Jesus coming back it talks about the bride or the the bride of, of Christ which is the church and Jesus himself coming back together when Jesus shows back up. And the idea behind this is huge imagery here that we don't see Isaac again till his wedding day. In the same way, we don't see Jesus again till he comes back, which is described as the Bible as a wedding. And God would say, come on. I'm going to go through incredible detail. I'm going to have it in every corner, in every part. And sometimes I'm just going to say it blatantly that the entire world, that every nation is going to be blessed through me. So here's what I want you to know. Here's, in fact, what I want you to do is simply to know. To know that you serve a God who it's been centuries and centuries and centuries wanting you to know that he was going to show up. In fact, he, he had books written, history books some, poetry books some, wisdom literature some, prophecy some, and compile it in this book that we have, that actually is a list of books that we have in the Old Testament. Because God didn't want you to miss when he, in fact, gave his one and only son. And he spent centuries and years. Not so that all of a sudden we would figure out it's an old archaic system that doesn't work. But so that when his son came, the world would realize it was in fact his son. And when Jesus, again, looked at the Old Testament looked at what they had as the Hebrew Bible, which they described as the Moses and the law and the prophets and the scriptures. His main concern. And the thing that happened throughout the early church, whenever people would talk about Jesus, whenever people would talk and try to convince other people of Jesus, over and over and over, it says stuff like, and they started with the law and the prophets. Because they were concerned with who to see, not what to do. So all I want you to do is simply know that you have a God that so deeply cares about you and deeply loves you that he spent thousands of years over different languages, over multiple continents, saying there's going to come a guy and I love you so much that I don't want you to miss it. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the fact that you sent us your son, our savior. God, you looked at Isaac, you looked at Abraham, and you said, Abraham, don't 
don't kill your son. Don't allow your son to die. But God, when it came to us, you didn't stop the knife. When it came to us, you allowed your son to die for us, to take away the sins of the world. And God, you would be a loving God, and you would be a patient God. A loving and a patient God to the point where you would send prophecy after prophecy, imagery after imagery, parallel after parallel, so that when your son showed up, we wouldn't miss it. God, I just pray that every single person in here, myself included, that we just feel so loved that we have a God who so deeply loves us. He was willing to wait year after year, century after century, not so that we would simply know what to do, but so that when Jesus arrived, we would know who to see. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you guys so much. I got one last thing to tell you before you go. Hey, this Thursday night is probably one of the most critical nights in the, in the history of our church. Um, we're having this thing called Vision Night. Where we're talking about all the places that we've come from and what we feel like God's called us to in the next year. We really hope that you'll join us for Vision Night this Thursday. Y'all have a great evening, afternoon, day. Afternoon.